This is the Yale University Press podcast, and I'm Jessica Hollihan. I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Susan A. Phillips. Susan is an urban ethnographer who studies gangs, violence, and incarceration in the United States. She's a professor of environmental analysis at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, and her new book, Just Out, is The City Beneath, A Century of Los Angeles Graffiti. The book is effectively a history of Los Angeles told through the lens of marginalized groups that have used the city's walls, drain tunnels, bridges, and piers, among other spaces, as channels for communication. Each chapter in the book is devoted to a particular group, and the table of contents includes chapter titles like hobos, prisoners, pachucos, surfers, killers, grips, and taggers. Susan, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Jessica. What makes graffiti such a popular medium for the wide variety of marginalized groups you discuss in the book? Um, Well, you know, it's an interesting way you phrased it. And also, I, I think that what happens is graffiti has been a popular medium of expression just among humans for millennia. And so, you know, it's it's only actually quite recently that it's begun to be associated with marginalized communities because for many years, um, probably since, you know, ancient Rome throughout, through early modern history into the 1800s, well, especially in those earlier periods, you had literate societies that didn't have paper and they routinely wrote in public spaces, private spaces, on the interiors of bedrooms. And I mean, there's just like these massive, massive traditions of wall writing that take place um, from 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 the time of ancient Rome. And we have a lot of data from there, of course, because of Pompeii, and then through into um, the the biggest clusters of of data that are graffiti related are from um, from England. Uh, and there's just tons of it. And so when you get to the 20th century, what you do find is that that marginalized people are using it. And partly it's because it's so, so easy. It's such a it's just such an open medium. It's also because it's illegal um, in the in the current day. And so because of its illegality, it's impossible to control. It's impossible to put constraints on it. And so both you have the cheapness of media, the actual media um, of expression. In other words, um, you know, chalk, a burned stick, you know, that's like a charcoal writing implement, a pencil, crayons, or just, you know, anything, even a rock on a wall or a railroad spike on concrete. I mean, these are the media that you would just find on the ground as you went. Later on in the 20th century, you get into spray paint, which does cost some money. But of course, most people are stealing it uh, by that time anyway. And so there's like, again, the ability to to do things that are not necessarily, I think when things are illegal, it makes them um, much more available uh, to and, and, and less able to be controlled um, in a sense. Uh, which makes it a good tool for marginalized groups to then use as their form of expression. 
Is or there... one of their forms of expression, I right. guess I should say. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have the sense that part of the appeal is that the what they're expressing might be viewed by a wider audience that otherwise doesn't pay attention? I think um, the weird thing is with graffiti, most people are writing it for for themselves and for people like them. Mm -hmm. So very, very little of the time are you actually talking about trying to reach a wider audience. Now, there are some exceptions to that. So there's some like traditions of Jesus saves type messages that that come through time. And those are definitely, you know, um, geared toward a broader audience. Also, political graffiti can tend to be geared toward a broader audience outside but the, the lion's share of it, and certainly in a place like Los Angeles, is actually geared for internal communities. So even if it's placed in very public spaces where lots of people are driving by or walking by um, and a lot of visibility and you can see it, it's really not geared for like Joe Blow on the street. It's really geared for a very particular audience of insiders that already understands the meaning of what those messages is. Yeah, that is fascinating to me. Um, you've developed a real fluency with the language of different kinds of Los Angeles graffiti, the abbreviations and the initials and the acronyms and references to neighborhoods or nicknames of neighborhoods. How specific is that um, to Los Angeles? That is, how, how regional is the language of graffiti? Um, that's actually such a good question because what's happened recently is – the proliferation of New York style graffiti coming out of 1970s New York subways. Um, and that tradition was, of course, began as a local tradition in New York. And as a local tradition, it then has become the most, really the most widely participated art form in the history of the world. I mean, it's in every corner of the globe. And it looks very similar no matter where you go. So that little local tradition that started in New York became this global phenomenon. That's not necessarily the case with most local traditions of graffiti. So in Los Angeles, you have gang graffiti, which is our other sort of biggest graffiti genre out here. And that's very localized to you know, the participation of gangs, um, you know, people in gang culture. So gangs have certainly spread also in a certain, in a, in a certain globalized way, you know, through deportation to, uh, Mexico and Central America, for example, there's lots of gangs in Central America and Mexico that are deported from the United States. They use the same codes that people in Los Angeles use because the gangs are really from here. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that kind of, tra um, you know, when people will sort of transport gangs into other locations, which happens frequently, um, those are very localized traditions to L.A. The rest of the things I think that I'm writing about in the book um, all have their different trajectories based on the kind of work it is. So, for example, the, the work of the, the writing of container ship sailors oh, that's in the harbor of Los Angeles that writing is probably in every harbor in the world because it's a mobile group of seafarers that is making it. Um, and actually, they don't make it anymore because 
because of environmental reasons, uh, they're disallowed from painting their ships in harbor, at least in the United States. So that practice of leaving your ship name and so forth, and your maybe your own name and the year in the harbor where you dock is is kind of a now a dead tradition. But that genre of graffiti exists in multiple languages, you know, um, multiple scripts, multiple calendrical systems, and it's all over the world because. Every everybody goes to different harbors and they do this. So I just happened to chart the story for L.A. Um, and then you know within L.A. there's there's just lots of different traditions. The same thing with with railroad stuff. There's a huge tradition called moniker writing that's shared across. Um, it, it doesn't really have boundaries. It's not really bounded by locality in the way um, that like something like gang graffiti would be because the whole point and the premise of it is mobility and it's mobility based on freight train travel. So there's kind of interesting like nuances to the answer to the question that you're asking. Mm-hmm. Um, every place that I've ever visited has its own local traditions of graffiti and almost all of them are kind of under threat because of New York style, the proliferation of the New York style graffiti. So like in Northern Ireland, the kids used to have this way of like writing their names on top of each other in these lines. And that was the local tradition of writing your name in, in Belfast. And that was addition to, in addition to like the sectarian graffiti that they did, depending on, you know, if you're Catholic or Protestant, what groups you're affiliated with. Those are very local traditions to Northern Ireland. In Italy, there's just tons of political graffiti. And some of that has been subsumed into like hip hop, New York style writing, um, but there's still political graffiti there, and that's very local to Italy. Mm-hmm. So there's like definitely a lot of survival of these local traditions. But there's also a lot of coverage um, of of the New York style, and it's sort of like the takeover. And I think for me that what's fun about the book that I've written is that the academic world is obsessed with the New York style writing and like a, tra- a trajectory from like – New York in the 1970s to like Banksy, you know, and street art phenomena. And I'm so not interested in almost any of that. So I just wanted to turn back our attention to these like littler, more localized genres of writing that people have either forgotten about, maybe that have since been destroyed and that are really fundamentally part of any city's history, no matter how far back you can look. Yeah. And speaking of being under threat, the, the work that you've documented is constantly under threat of being destroyed or erased. Um, how do you balance an urgency to what you do with a kind of equanimity and acknowledgement that these are ephemeral works? Yeah. I mean, it's taken me such a long time to get there. I feel pretty good about where I'm at with that now. For a long time, I just used to lose sleep over you know, I yeah. would like wake up in the middle of the night thinking, is that graffiti from 1948 in tar from the Dogtown <laughs> gang going to still be there? You know, and then like the hobo graffiti from 1914, it's still up. But, you know, is there like what's going to happen to it? And then, you know, I've had to watch coverage. It's either the city that does it in terms of whitewashing or it's other graffiti writers that do it. Um, and, and also the city, of course, in terms of urban restructuring and rebuilding of bridges and, and so forth. That, anytime you do that, you end up destroying things, um, you know, because nobody notices this stuff. And when they see it, they don't 
know that it's important. It's like they just have selective vision to look at whatever they're looking at and they don't necessarily notice. There's like a very rich history kind mm-hmm. of underneath what, what it is that they're doing. What I what I read, I read this article that helped me a lot um, by Susan Crane and she talks about what it means to place, to try to place something into an archive. And, and she basically says that, you know, with, with material um, expression, you get the, and it wasn't about graffiti specifically, um, but you, you kind of halt things in their own temporality, like things have their own temporality and it's kind of a sacred thing that they have their own lifespan and their lifespan is part of the history of the city. And at some point that means that things will get written over. And like you pointed out, they are ephemeral and graffiti is meant to be ephemeral. And so the people who were writing a hundred years ago or 80 years ago, certainly never imagined their stuff would survive as long as it has. And for me, all I can be content with is that, I mean, I always think of like the fish that got away kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a lot of stories about, oh, I was in a place and I drove under this bridge for like, you know, 10 years before I had a camera in my phone. And I was like, I got to go back and take a picture of this graffiti. And then one day I drive back, I drive by and it's gone. And I'm like, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I take that picture? (laughs) It's ridiculous. You know, I knew the graffiti had been sitting there since the 1960s. And I was like, well, it's been there since the 1960s, just tomorrow, you know, or the next. So um, I have tons of stories like that. But, um, But in general, what I think I tried to do in the book and what makes me feel better is I tried to, I I know that I just one person, I can't do a thorough all encompassing job of documenting what is a massive, massive tradition in the city of Los Angeles. So what I tried to do is just point out a method for how anyone can do this. And so if they run across stuff and how they can develop eyes to see it, Mm -hmm. because that's really the thing that nobody sees it. Nobody no, even if they're there writing, they don't see it and they don't see it as important. And some of it's very tiny. So if you can help people develop eyes to see it, then you can help people understand um, how they can also participate in that kind of documentation. Um, the other thing is thinking about the city, like the city itself, by publishing the book, I hope that when they do things like, oh, we're going to tear down a bridge, that they'll think, okay, we should see a it may not stop them from tearing down the bridge, but we need to see what's there and, and, and we need to see if there's history because it's basically voices um, that are contained in those structures and they deserve to be documented before to being destroyed, I think. Yeah. So. And, and about the documentation, you know, the, the photographs in your book, yours, those of other chroniclers of L.A. graffiti, really anyone's photography of graffiti can't but add a photographer's aesthetic to the original work. Right. Do you, do you feel any tension between visually conveying graffiti in an authentic way while also capturing it through another medium? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's funny because there's definitely a tension every time I'm in the field. I always try to take a combination of pictures that to me are decent. You know, I'm, I'm not claiming at all the status of an artist, but I try to, I try to take good pictures. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I understand the rudiments of composition and, you know, I try to take things that look nice to me. Um, at the same time to document some of this stuff, it, you have to take really terrible photographs <laughs> of it. 
like it's horrible. You know, they're just, they're in really bad light or they're so tiny. And then you have to take like 10 pictures to try to get it. What is one composition? I mean, it's, it's, it's like the amount of really like terrible photographs I have is, is far greater than the amount of like artful photographs that I had. And, um, and that's good. I needed to document what was there in the most thorough way I could. And a lot of the time that does not make for nice, pretty pictures, um, so for the book, I, I definitely tried to pick pictures I thought were, were beautiful. Um, there are some exceptions to that, you know, like in one of the chapters, there's the signatures of two men and they're just like straight on shots of the signatures. Like there's nothing artful about it. You know, there's another chapter with the military stuff in it. One of them is kind of an artful shot, but the other one, not at all, you know, they're mm. just awful. <laughs> so, I mean, they're not awful, but they, they communicate like what's there. So the person can see it. Right. Um, and those are powerful in their own way, you know, even if they're not like, oh, you know, approximating the level of sort of artistry that, that, that any photographer would really want, I guess. Right. But uh, allowing the viewer to sort of um, feel like they're there in a way. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. What I find a lot of the time, it's pretty funny, even when I myself look back on photographs, the graffiti seems bigger in the photograph. And then when I go into it to see it again in person, they look much smaller. So there's something about scale that gets messed up in the process of photographing graffiti. And I'm not sure why, and I'm not sure what it is, but it definitely happens. That's interesting. So we all need to come out and look at the the original graffiti <laughs> after we've read the book. That's right. Well, <laughs> and if it's still there, it's right. the problem. Like you pointed out, like all of the graffiti from, I mean, some of the, the sites have been totally destroyed. And what I find reassuring is eat, when I say destroyed, if it's destroyed, if the architecture is gone, the whole thing is gone. What I find reassuring is if something is simply painted over by another graffiti artist and has like, oh, now it has a layer of spray paint over it. In a way, that's protecting the image. Mm. It's 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 covering it, you know, and it's and it's become embedded as part of the city. Odds are that no one will ever see that stuff again, um, but somehow it's there, and like knowing that it's there is is reassuring to me. Mm-hmm. And some of the graffiti that you document was created quite a while ago, eighty hundred years ago, by people who are no longer alive. Um, and in several instances in, that you talk about in the book, you were able to identify and make contact with living descendants of people whose graffiti you came across. Um, can you talk about some of those experiences and also about the dimension that you add to the book and to the research by including the voices of, the, of these descendants? Yeah, it's been so much fun. That's been the best part of it for me. Um, it's just been an unbelievable gift. And, and, and I think what I, what I tried to do, because, you know, I have done a lot of criminal justice work in the past. And so, you know, I've had to look up people's criminal records and like find out. So I know how to get information. It's not hard. You can pay for any information you want about people. For this book, what I wanted to do was not invade anybody's privacy by paying for their contact information. I just wanted to go through public means to do that. And so, I was able, at least in a couple of instances, to, to through public means, um, find the relatives of, of folks. And it was just such an eye-opener. So, And in fact, I had a reading on uh, Saturday, and, 
and uh, one of the descendants of of a man who had written his name when he was a boy, you know, on this bridge in 1925 or something, um, was there. And that has been such a meaningful experience for her um, as well as for me. So we went to visit the site together. She saw her grandfather's name on this bridge and was just overcome with emotion at seeing his name there and then seeing his full name in another part of the bridge. Um, in another instance on that same bridge, I was able to take the daughter of someone who wrote his name. And in both cases, I was able to sort of get the backstory of who the who these people were, you know, mm-hmm. and they became kind of these anchor points for me. Um, and the most poignant, poignant stories have come out of this. And I think, um, in a way, you get the sense um, that people now. Uh, one of the women uses it almost as a place where she goes to visit her grandfather instead of going to where he's buried. Wow. She goes to this bridge and she takes her kids. And it's a really, and she was um, saying, you know, how grateful she is to have this as part of her legacy um, now that she can share it with her family. Um, In another case, with the military stuff, I was able to find the daughter of someone. (laughs) And this is just such a funny story. Like, she immediately was like, well, do you know... And he had been in the army and he had died, you know, young. He died when he was about 40. So she didn't know him all that well. And she was like, do you know what, what, you know, branch of the military he was in and, and what company he was in? Because I've never been able to find out. I was like, oh yeah, I do know. And I told her, you know, what it was, the 554th Battery D in San Pedro, you know, regular army, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized the only reason I know that is because he wrote it himself on the wall of this little pillbox bunker overlooking the Pacific. And he left the information there. And that's what his his unit was. And then there were things, there were open-ended things about like, what was the, what was his experience like in the army? She always felt like something bad had happened. And then I was able to figure out based on inter- an interview with some, somebody else who was in that same battery and then a memorial graffiti written on the wall, you know, there had been a camera, it had been stolen, he got kicked out of the army basically, you know, th- like this whole thing happened. And when she found out about all that, it answered a lot of questions for her. You know? yeah. <laughs> so it's this kind of like weird mutual exploration that people have gone, that we've done together. It's almost like a collaborative generation of knowledge that has benefited me because it's benefited, you know, the stories in the book and made the book so rich, I think, in terms of the history that it's able to tell of Los Angeles and the very different kinds of people who come here. But then it's also just benefited the people themselves to kind of, you know, I think about it, man, if somebody came up to me and said, you know, I found your grandfather's signature under a bridge, you know, in Rome or whatever, where my grandfather was from, I would be all over that. Yeah, so that's kind of been a really fun part of the process. I was struck a number of times reading your book that, in this particular way of telling Los Angeles history, you were simultaneously breaking the city down into these distinct, disparate parts, but also pulling it together in a pretty innovative and unusual way, both by giving scholarly attention to voices that are frequently excluded and through the specific form of expression that the voices exercised. Is that is that a paradox that you felt at all doing your research and writing the book? 
It, it's so lovely to hear you say that. I hadn't considered it in that way. I had considered, I had considered d- disparate treatments, um, but I hadn't considered that the book w- could could make a holistic statement, which is what I kind of hear in what you're saying. I mean, I think if it does, it does have to do with the power of marginalized voices. Uh, in that sense, and like the kind of underbelly of the city, you know, the parts that people ignore, and here they are. But I wasn't sure if that was a coherent message, or if it was just like, here's 16 chapters, you know, read them in order, out of order, however you want. And <laughs> well, hopefully and you there's an overarching... No, yeah. Yeah. But there, but there absolutely yeah. is this wonderful through thread, um, that even though, you know, these people, these are people whose lives didn't overlap, you know, for any number of reasons. Um, They were in the same geographic area using the same kind of method to express themselves. Yeah. Well, and I also, I mean, for me, the the through lines are partially theoretical um, as well, that they have to do with, you know, how how do people make place within a city? And there's something really funny about the use of infrastructure. And so part of what I tried to do is draw together the almost like ecological infrastructural history of the city by following the watershed of the city and the kind of urban and ecological development of Los Angeles, like looking at the movement of goods, looking at the control over water, uh, looking at the production of images and like, you know, the, the, the development of defense systems like or the housing of people like there's just like these major infrastructural systems that are all kind of overlapping in a sense and coming together through these stories. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's part of that was part of the, you know, the theoretical thrust of the book, like how do people do that? materially, you know, they're already writing on infrastructure, which is this, you know, tremendously way of weird way of belonging to a city is to like take over infrastructure. (laughs) And then they're doing it through this very, very particular lens, which is the graffiti, you know, the graffiti lens. Um, And it's just absolutely such a simple uh, way of, of, of expressing oneself. You know, if you don't have anything, if you literally don't have anything, you can still scratch your name onto a wall with a rock. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's just a very fundamental thing. So it, it, so I, I think about people in situations of extreme constraint a lot of the time and like what what expressive, what ways do they have of like tying themselves to place or like linking themselves to the city. And that's And that's the way they did it, at least because I was looking through this particular lens. I, I basically had these... I had kind of love affairs with every chapter in this book. And there's something that was really beautiful for me as an author about about being able to kind of tie together these. And I tried to make the history, the histories that I was writing of these in these chapters like graffiti in a way. Like I was, you know, when you think about graffiti as being keywords and they're very condensed, like there's a condensed narrative within each of these words. And I ended up writing these very condensed chapters. Like you could literally write an entire book on each of the chapters that I, that I have written, but I had to do it in this kind of truncated way that distilled, you know, exactly what I needed to understand this material um, into these little 
neat packages, which were the chapters. And I did that by looking a lot of the time at infrastructure and ecology, um, but also looking at people and people's stories and the stories of people's lives. So looking at the places themselves and then looking at the surrounding social and political context for things and like really situating it well, like what do I need to understand this era? And it was just so interesting for me because before I um, embarked on this project, I felt like I was a person who was super knowledgeable about Los Angeles. I'd done work here my whole life. You know, I know most of the scholarship on LA, you know, like I, I know people who do work on LA, like it's, you know, a place I consider to be, oh, uh, this is like one of the areas where I put it on my Vita. Like, what are you, what do you study? Well, I study Los Angeles. And, um, once I started working on this book in earnest, I realized I knew nothing about the things I was writing about, you know, because of the way that, as you pointed out at the beginning, the sort of profound marginality of the people meant that I was telling stories that I had never really heard before. And I needed to use different mechanisms to really understand them and bring bring their history, um, you know, into into the public realm in this way. So that was a fascinating process. And now, if you were to ask me, do you know about LA? My answer would be kind of because <laughs> now I know how much I don't know based on the fact that you know there's a zillion of these things out there and that we'll never ever know. And I'm People tell me about new stuff every day, and I'm like, whoa, I didn't know the, you know, th th there's there's just many, many more stories to be told, I guess. Yeah. Well, you write them in a very compelling and appealing way. Thank you for doing it, and thank you again for talking to me about it today. Thank you, Jessica. The book we've been discussing is The City Beneath, A Century of Los Angeles Graffiti. It can be purchased at bookstores and online. Thank you for checking out this podcast. Please visit us online at YaleBooks.com to keep up with the whole podcast series as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.